There are about uh, 20,000 megalithic tombs in Western Europe. That's on the Atlantic coast from uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, Western France, and up into Scandinavia. And Ireland and Britain, of course, will belong to that great province. Are they all coastal? Not all coastal, no. Some go inland. But uh, passage graves in general are found fairly close to the coast, particularly in Brittany. Uh, And of these 20,000 megalithic tombs in general, by the way, I would say 80-90% are passage graves. What distinguishes passage graves? Um, As against other megalithic tombs, they have a passage element uh, which leads into a chamber element. The chamber element is meant to contain burials, the passage element is the approach element, and then, of course, this is covered by a very large tumulus or covering mound. And have you any idea what the purpose of the passage was? Was it for ritual or...? Well, looking at the finest of these, one gets the impression that uh, there is a sense of mystery created by putting the chamber some distance inside or under the covering mound, and the passage grave is necessary. The passage is necessary then as, a, as an approach element. Would it also have been a precaution against the depredations of wild animals, for example? I'm sure that that might well have entered the minds of these people, yes. How does the Boyne Valley figure in this uh, enormous spread of Neolithic tombs? Well, as you come up the Atlantic coast, there are some very fine areas or cemeteries where one finds particularly fine tombs, like in Antiquera down in the south of Spain, in the region around about Karnak in Brittany, and the Boyne Valley would be of that order. It's the prime passage grave cemetery in Ireland. Professor Michael Herity, an expert in passage graves. Another professor, George Ogan, has been working at Nouth in the Boyne Valley over a long period of years. Yes, in fact, we started uh, excavating here in 1962, and we've been at the work since. Um, well, uh, when we started, we knew we were uh, dealing with a fairly large site, but we had no idea that it was going to turn out to be such a, a massive uh, site that it is, and indeed a very complex site. Uh, we assumed we were going to discover uh, some uh, tombs of the Neolithic period, the Late Stone Age. Uh, we have uh, done that, but in addition to that, uh, various other features have turned up. Uh, for instance, there's some <coughs> occupation uh, material, house sites and so on, contemporary with the tombs. But then after that, we have fairly extensive early Bronze Age occupation and then coming down later still to the Iron Age and to the uh, entire early Christian period, uh, very considerable settlement took place here. And finally then we have evidence for uh, Norman settlement. So the story of now is there for a very long, drawn-out one. What's the furthest back that it goes? How far before Christ? Well, I'd say back to towards 3000 BC. Uh, Some of the earliest tombs here must have been built around or shortly after 3000 BC, and uh, I would guess the tomb building went on for several centuries, probably close to a thousand years. Why were the tombs so important? Why should they have survived? Well, of course, unlike the habitation size, the tombs were built from large stones, um, great massive blocks of stones, and they have a better chance of surviving than uh, the 
the more domestic uh, structures which were built from flimsier material such as wood. But even that, of course, some of the uh, smaller tombs uh, at now than indeed elsewhere in this uh, cemetery area have themselves been uh, pretty seriously damaged. Well, do you infer from what you have found that uh, this place was occupied by people who had a, a reverence for death? Well, I think there's no doubt at all about that uh, because the main mound here, uh, incidentally what we have here is a cemetery of, of, of passage tombs and the main mound, uh, the sort of the core uh, mound, uh, covers about an, acre, about an acre and a half. This is an enormous structure, you see. Uh, it's about 33 uh, feet in height. Uh, it's delimited around the edge. The big mound is delimited around the edge by a series of curbstones which average about six feet in length. And then in addition to that, uh, the mound covers two enormous chambers, uh, huge things. In fact, one of the chambers is about 114 feet in total length, and the other one, uh, which we call the eastern chamber, is over 130 feet uh, long. These, these are enormous structures. So therefore, a cult of the dead or a devotion for the, the dead certainly played a major role in the, the thinking and, I'm sure, in the lives of these uh, early farming peoples. And these were not royal tombs. These were tombs for all the people. Uh, well, it's difficult to be certain about that. Uh, firstly, the burial rite was cremation, and therefore a lot of evidence is destroyed. Uh, say, for instance, it may be possible uh, if the burial was inhumation for anatomists uh, to give us some indication of maybe some evidence for, say, a family disease or something like that going right through. But it's not possible to do this due to the fact that the, the burial rite was cremation. Now, in addition to that, um, it would be possible, of course, for these tombs to contain the remains of hundreds of individuals. Some of them are so large, but we have no evidence so far uh, here at Nowth for massive uh, burials. Uh, certainly the greatest number of individuals that we have in any one tomb is about uh, 20 or thereabouts. So on this evidence, it's difficult to know whether the tombs, whether all members of the community had uh, a right to bury in the tomb, so to speak, or whether these tombs were confined to certain uh, members of society. It's, it's one that we simply cannot solve at the moment. What kind of people were these? Were they sophisticated? Were they numerous? Oh, yes, I think, well, I think there's no doubt about their sophistication. Uh, well, if we take it firstly, I think they must be numerous because the building of a, a site, say, as large as the Big Mount, which, as I've said, covers about an acre and a half, that was an enormous undertaking. Uh, one needed a, a pretty major workforce to do that. Stones had to be taken to the place. These stones had to be erected. Uh, and in general, I think this would involve uh, a large labour force of maybe a 100 or more individuals, certainly at certain times of the year. Well, then, uh, therefore, I think that the builders of these tombs were able to draw on, uh, on a fairly large population. Well, now, about the sophistication, I think, again, this is very clear when we look at the tombs themselves, because, uh, from take one point, uh, these tombs, all of them, even the smaller ones here, are themselves uh, considerable works of architectural and, indeed, engineering uh, merit. And if we uh, particularly consider the big site... Uh, this involved uh, a knowledge of maybe not the true arch, but certainly uh, very fine corbelled uh, roofings, uh, the construction of large passages, the roofing of these long passages. Uh, all of this involved certainly uh, uh, an early, an incipient knowledge of architecture 
and uh, civil engineering. These tools are not the sort of things you could just build after having sort of taken a, a, rash, a, a rash stand that you're just going to build a tomb. There's much more to it than that. I believe you had to have the equivalence of your engineers and architects working this out on paper or on something beforehand and then carrying through this work um, according to this preconceived plan. So I believe this de- demands a certain uh, scientific uh, knowledge uh, as such. So I think that indicates that there were indeed a sophisticated society. But apart from that, again, you have evidence for sophistication, say, in the burial rite. Uh, one aspect of that concerns the, the decoration on the stones. Now, a lot of the large stones uh, of both the chambers and the t- of both the tombs and, of course, of the curb stones around the edge of the mound are decorated, decorated with various abstract symbols, well, in its, in its their own way, again, they indicate this sophistication of society. So I think we are dealing with a very well-organised society, uh, a society that was capable of constructing these enormous sites and then, in many cases, embellishing them farther still. How would they compare, say, with the tombs of the pharaohs? Well, of course, they're, they're a different thing. Uh, except that in both uh, areas, uh, large uh, burial chambers uh, were constructed uh, by that period in Egypt, around the 3rd millennium BC, roughly, of course, the equivalent time of the, the, when the tombs were being built here in the Boyne Valley. Um, say, in the, Boyne, in the Nile Valley, people were more advanced there. Well, uh, literacy, literacy was available to these people and they were able to keep accounts and so on. We have no evidence of course for that uh, here in Ireland at that stage. Uh, in fact we know nothing about the uh, the, the, the literary uh, competence of the builders of these tombs because uh, this is a way back in the prehistoric period and uh, literacy only spread to Ireland at a much later stage, uh, still two to three thousand years later. Have you any evidence as to how these people subsisted? Well, uh, yes, we have. We have uh, direct and indirect evidence. For instance, uh, grains of uh, corn and uh, animal bone have been found at some uh, sites. So I think what we can say is that uh, these people were fairly... uh, They they practiced mixed farming. I think that's generally it. And if we could uh, throw our mind back to the Boyne Valley, say, four to 5,000 years ago, I'm quite certain that we would uh, see uh, in this area, and certainly a number of isolated uh, farmsteads, uh, people efficiently and effectively cultivating uh, the rich lands of this area. By that I mean growing corn crops on the one hand, say wheat, and also keeping domestic animals, especially uh, cattle. So I think that it was was this uh, sound farming uh, basis, of course, that enabled these people to build these enormous sites that they did build in this in this area. So the builders of these tombs uh, were, no doubt, the earliest farmers uh, of this Boyne Valley area, which, of course, today is still uh, one of the richest uh, farming areas in the country. They knew where they were settling, in other words. Yes, they had a very good eye for the land, I believe, and I'm sure the reason the cemetery is here is simply because there was a good agricultural land around it which uh, sustained... Uh, the, the inhabitants. I suppose the question could be asked, what uh, makes the Boyne Valley tombs particularly prominent? The first thing I would single out is 
magnificence of the covering mound. As the covering mounds there cover well over an acre and a half. Now, if you think of these as public buildings and ask yourself what public buildings in Ireland today in any of the towns cover more than an acre and a half, I think you'll find it difficult to, to get very large buildings of that order. Uh, the second thing that I would single out is that under that covering mound, which is a colossal mass of stone, something like a quarter of a million tonnes of stone and, and earth, and under that they place a very adventurous roof over the chamber. You know, you've seen the roof at Newgrange, and uh, it stands something like seven metres over the ground. Now that, even in modern terms, is quite a massive thing. It stands seven metres high and is seven metres wide. And um, that must have taken a great deal of technical expertise to construct. And I think it took also adventurousness, because here you are putting a roof of this kind, which the pressures of the mound above will bear, bear down on, and there you have a tension, which was attempted successfully by the passage grave builders. So there I think you have great technical expertise and I think great ambition. When you look at the art of Newgrange, uh, it certainly is at least as fine as what you get on the continent at its finest. But the interesting thing is that the finest stones are in the curb of the tomb. And there again you have an Irish innovation, because it's most unusual to get art on the curb, the outside curb of stones, which sort of girdle the tumulus, uh, on the continent. You very, very rarely, if ever, get that. Whereas in Ireland, in the Boyne Valley, it becomes the norm. Now, I would see a challenge there, because if you put a stone in the open air against a different kind of context, a different, different kind of background, as was done with the Newgrange entrance stone, then you are creating a challenge of a kind which was not met before on the Atlantic, in Brittany, um, where the stones are invariably to be viewed inside in the darkness of the tomb. So, you know, I think in, if just by singling out these three things, I would say that uh, the Boyne Valley goes well beyond uh, what you have in the Atlantic, though remaining, of course, generally within the same tradition. There are roughly, in the Boyne Valley, there is roughly one-third of all the decorated stones that exist in Western Europe in this tradition. Brother Mirish O'Sullivan, who has made a detailed study of the decorated stones of the Boyne Valley. There are more decorated stones in the Boyne Valley than there is in France, in all of France. There are more decorated stones at the one side of Nauth than there is in all of Iberia. And there are more decorated stones at Nauth than there is in all of the passage tombs of so we're immensely rich in these stones. What would this lead you to believe? The general feeling is that these travellers, whoever they were, that they came from east to west, that they spread westwards across Europe. Would this uh, bear out that theory? Uh, it is difficult to know just from looking at art what direction people spread and what sequence and so on there was. But uh, the numbers of stones in the, in the different areas certainly don't prove the point that they spread from east to west or from south to north. 
And in fact, if you look at questions of composition and so on, which is another area, um, one suspects at times that uh, rather than Ireland developing from, for example, Brittany, you find some of the Breton stones seem to be almost a development of what you find in some areas in Ireland. Now, I'm not saying that it developed from Ireland to Brittany, but what I am saying is that you can't just talk about one linear sequence of events, uh, Iberia, Brittany, Ireland, but that what you have is a complex of uh, artistic creation going on, and people are moving back and forward. Artists are perhaps moving. Certainly, uh, the artistic tradition does not seem to be a single linear sequence. The other thing about this, the same uh, motifs seem to run through all of these discoveries in Western Europe, and the degree of excellence seems to depend on the excellence of the local artist in stone. That's correct, yes. Uh, And you get very interesting things in that as well. For example, at Newgrange, perhaps some of the most competent the famous entrance stone at Newgrange, for example, is perhaps the most competent uh, piece of work that you'll find, in Ireland at least. Yet, if you're talking about an overall high standard of, and certainly an overall ambitious standard of decoration, you don't find that at Newgrange, you find it more so at Nowth. And what you get at Newgrange are a few very highly competent pieces of work, and then some that do not look so competent. Uh, And that's the sort of thing that exists throughout the tradition of passage grave art, which makes one suspect that uh, whereas the artistic tradition varies, the artistic ability and quality varies, the same motifs are preserved throughout. A very small vocabulary of perhaps 15, 20 motifs are preserved throughout, which makes one suspect that uh, those motifs were in some way important. And this is where the question of symbolism comes in, that... Uh, if they were important, they were perhaps symbolic. Well, I think that's a very big question. Um, I suppose if we just look at it first, uh, very often on a single stone you'll find one single device or sign or symbol or let's just call it a a carving. Uh, There's a fairly small vocabulary of those uh, and that small vocabulary is is repeated uh, pretty frequently throughout the country. So I think it would be reasonable to suggest that these might well then have had some symbolic function. When you say vocabulary, you mean that the actual the actual number of individual designs is limited? Quite limited, yes. I suppose I haven't ever counted them, but I'd be surprised if there were more than, say, 30 major uh, symbols or, or devices. And has anyone worked on that, say a cryptologist, for example? No, uh, it has never attracted a John Ventris or a, a Ventris or a cryptologist. Uh, I think probably the vocabulary is just a bit limited, but uh, it, it might well repay study by a cryptologist. What are the main uh, representations? Uh, animals don't seem to figure very much. There are um, figurative representations down in Iberia. You do find a few little animals down there. But uh, when you come to Brittany and Ireland, it's uh, impossible to find a, a representational thing. Usually it's something that could be... It's very, very abstract indeed, something like uh, 
a cup inside a circle, a cup mark inside a circle, a number of concentric circles, arrayed circles, that kind of thing. Spirals, of course, are particularly prominent in Ireland, like on the Newgrange entrance stone. Which must be almost unique among these things. Well, the marvellous thing about the Newgrange entrance stone is that it goes much further than simply portraying that individual device on the stone. What uh, happens there is that a number of spirals, a number of concentric arcs, a few lozenges, uh, and other simple things like that are combined into a rather marvellous abstract composition which covers the whole face of a stone which is placed then at the entrance of the tomb. Uh, some of them have been referred to as uh, geometric, which isn't entirely true, of course, because some of them are not geometric, but they have been referred to as geometric. The one that comes nearest to perhaps being uh, close to some form of a representational thing would be the famous, what has been called the sunsplash at Nowth, which is a semicircular sort of arrayed motif which exists uh, on one of the curbstones and faces east. Now, it, is, uh, it has been called a sundial by some people, a sunsplash by other people. Nobody's too sure what it, what it actually is. But uh, there are reasons for suspecting that it might be some form of a sundial, though there's no proof. It has a central perforation that might make one suspect that there was some form of a stick put into it, and the shadow of the stick would indicate the hours as it moved along from ray to ray, uh, the difficulty with it, of course, is that that particular one uh, is, is only exposed to the sun up to midday. And the sun would actually go behind the stone after midday, roughly midday, on an average summer's day. So therefore it wouldn't be of any use for as a 12-hour sundial. Well, that's allowing for the stone in its present position, but hasn't been tried in another position? That one hasn't, no. But uh, the difficulty with it is that most of the stones that are actually seem to have this sundial-like object on them, this device, they are actually found in positions where they could not be used as sundials. So perhaps it would turn out to be a sundial if it was tried out. But the difficulty is that most of them seem to be found in positions where they wouldn't be of any use as sundials. This uh, decoration would have been applied with either, it seems, quartz or flint, uh, quartz or flint punch which would have been used in a striking action as with a hammer or it could have been a hammer and punch technique but the two tools that seem to have been used would have been either quartz or flints, flint and the one that seems to occur most often or certainly in the greatest quantity on passage grave sites would have been quartz and it seems to have been very important to these people because the most famous example of course is the facing on the wall of the curb at uh, Newgrange is quartz. Certainly a large quantity of it is quartz. Is and quartz indigenous to that area? Uh, quartz is not fully indigenous, but I think quartz has been found, certainly within uh, the catchment area, maybe you'd call it. Uh, it must be remembered that some of the stone is suspected to have been brought from quite a distance to these sites, miles I'm talking up to perhaps 30 miles, you know. And certainly quartz is to be found well within that 30-mile radius. And the decorated stones themselves, tell me what they're made of. 
The decorated stones themselves can be made from various rock, but the one that occurs most often in the Boyne Valley is sandstone. But in the Wicklow Mountains, there are uh, granite ones as well. At these sites, uh, especially at Newgrange and at Nowth, there are some what one may call exotic stones, uh, which are not really native to the area, quartz being a particular example. Now, today, the nearest place where you get quartz to the Boyne Valley is, say, around Hoth to the south and around the Newry area to the north. So really the question is uh, whether this quartz was imported into the Boyne Valley area in prehistoric times by the passage tomb builders or whether some of this quartz uh, was dislodged as a result of the advances or, and then, or retreat of the ice sheets and then deposited with other ice-borne uh, stones and debris around the countryside. In other words, uh, there is just, I suppose, the possibility that uh, some of this quartzite could be lying around in this uh, post-glacial environment and that it could be picked up by the passage tomb uh, builders. Uh, however, I think that this is a problem that has not yet been uh, fully solved by geologists, and until geologists get, I suppose, to do more work on this, uh, one cannot really be certain as to the source of the quartzite. Well, there's the question also about the origin of the curbstones. Uh, it's a distinctive type of rock, a green-cleaved uh, grit. Now, again, it is possible that some of these large stones could have been lying around in a post-glacial uh, landscape, but green-cleaved grit does occur north of the Mattock, uh, in other words, about three miles or so, about three miles or so from the Newgrange, now the area, and some of the curbstones do appear as if they are cleaved or broken off outcrops. So it may very well be that uh, a number of these large stones, which are used for building purposes, uh, were taken uh, from these outcrops some miles away. In other words, there was then a considerable amount of work involved in transporting these large curbstones uh, from at least uh, three or four miles away, which, if that is so, it was another aspect of the organisational achievements of the passage tomb builders. Now, these are a Stone Age people, and uh, they're well back into the Stone Age. The Bronze Age doesn't really appear in Ireland until after 2000 BC, and these people are on the scene perhaps a thousand years beforehand. Uh, the most important tool material for Stone Age people, pretty well everywhere in Western Europe, is flint. And flint is found, at its best, in chalk deposits. Now, Ireland has very little chalk, and what it has is found in a great circle under the basalt in the northeastern counties of Ireland, roughly on a line round the coast from Belfast Loch and turning south through East County Derry and then across North County Down. Now, if we look at the distribution of passage graves in that area we can enumerate something like 36 in that whole area, close to the chalk deposits. And of those 36, three, 33 are sat down upon the chalk. The other three, in fact, run on what appears to be a routeway across the ban at a place called Mavanagher from East uh, Antrim across into County Derry. Now, if we look in the tomb deposits themselves, in the burial deposits in the tombs, very far away, frequently we find pieces of fresh chalk which have been left in there as grave goods. And it looks to me as if this chalk is deposited because it is 
presumably some kind of sacred or magical material associated with the flint. Now, I think in that what appears to me to be a takeover of the flint deposits of the northeast of Ireland, you have another aspect of the dynamism of these people in economic terms, which then is reinforced in ritual terms by the appearance of the chalk in their grave goods. The big mound was there and, and all that, yes. And shrubbery on top of it and trees and all that before the excavation started in 1962. That was all cleared off it, don't you see? And it's different now to what it was, of course, in those days. But it is the way it originally looked like, with the white stone in front of it. And that's the way the Professor O'Kelly tells us that it was, originally, with that white stone. In the, but only the front, the sides and the back, was finished with ordinary stone. And that is the original stone that's in, the, in it now, at the present moment. And it came from Wicklow, which is about 50 miles away, 5,000 years ago. Quartzite stone, it's a quartzite stone. And there's a round grand stone through the white that came from the Moran Mountains, but it was rolled along with the waves from the Modersome local beach and then collected by these people. But that all that white stone and the and the, the granite was got on the site and has been placed back into the wall again. Believe it as the original looked like when first built five thousand years. That's the way Professor Kelly says original it was. Originally that it was. Almost inevitably, there's controversy about how the Boyne Valley did look during the Stone Age. 5,000 years, after all, is a long time. Dr. Liam Dupuere of UCD. There are two sides to, to the question of the reconstruction work there. One is the argument that there was originally a vertical facade to the tomb. And here Professor Kelly has produced... Uh, Arguments which uh, I think are sub- substantial and substantive uh, based on the way in which he found the collapsed material. It's been known for many years <clears throat> that there was a remarkably high quantity of white quartz there and has always been assumed that this was used to make the tomb conspicuous so that it could be seen from a long distance. Uh, people used to think in terms of forming a sort of mantle over the great mound. But he has concluded rather that it formed a facade which is little bit startling when you're used to these mounds just rising up the gentle slope. That's one side of it. The other side is the way, the, the way this has been carried out. Uh, mixed up with the collapsed white quartz, there were lots of rounded dark stones. Now, these have been reinserted like raisins in a cake. They're stuck in all over the place. And this looks extremely odd, and uh, I really don't think that it can ever have looked like that. Um, there's also there are also other qualms about reconstruction. Um, in this case, we have a reinforced concrete wall constructed, and the facade is um, is stuck onto that. Obviously, that's not the way it was originally. Uh, so we have here an attempt to present uh, what is assumed to have been the original appearance of the mound, but with a different mode of construction, which raises problems too. But it's the it's the aesthetic problem that worries, that makes me most unhappy about that reconstruction. It's so much in the style of those uh, little bungalows that went up in the 70s on the outskirts of all the Irish towns. It's real 1970s sort of kitsch decoration. And I don't believe there is any sound evidence for sticking in those currents uh, all over the bun in the way in which they have been done. Uh, is there an alternative school of thought as to what the dark stones were used for? Well, there were uh, views about that before Professor Kelly's excavation, uh, most of which I think he has demolished, as it were, in the course of his, his work. Uh, 
you see, I'm not, uh, I'm not suggesting that his interpretation of the evidence uh, is, is completely wrong by any means, but uh, there, there is always a problem in reconstruction. There's always a problem in conservation. Uh, you can make in a paper the statement that those stones may have been arranged this way, they may have been arranged that way, they may have been arranged another way. When you come to reconstruct, you can only arrange them one way, and you're making a statement then which you can't qualify. And this is, this is one of the basic problems of conservation and reconstruction work in general, which is uh, insurmountable. Uh, you can never restore an abbey or a castle or a megalithic tomb without deciding... You, you can't put in all the qualifications and the possibilities the way you can if you're just describing it in print. Restoration and reconstruction of this sort are very much the concern of the National Monuments Division of the Office of Public Works. John Mahoney is an administrator there. Professor Kelly was excavating at Newgrange for, say, 13 years, from 1962 to 1975, and he excavated in great detail. Uh, he is quite satisfied that um, the way the monument has been restored is, in fact, the way it was way back when it was constructed, say, 5,000 years ago. And the commissioner's workmen um, would have uh, carried out uh, the restoration on his recommendation. We have no reason to doubt that the facade of Newgrange was other than it is presented today. So much for the past. What then of the future? Well, Newgrange, as you know, is open to the public and we provide a guide information service there throughout the year. In summertime, we have up to six additional guide information officers uh, to deal with the public. Uh, all told, we have some 75,000 visitors a year to Newgrange. Most of those come during the summer season. Now, when the excavations at Nauth uh, are finished, hopefully inside the next two or three years, we will do something similar, I would imagine, at Nauth. But a lot will depend on the direction that the excavations take over the next few years. Well, I think that it looks a little bit brash these days, but give it a few hundred years, and after all, Newgrange has been round for 5,000 years. And when, you, when an archaeologist does his work, it's not just for this, his generation or the generation that... Uh, uh, the the next one or two it's forever really and I would say give it a few hundred years and it'll look all okay Father Rice is a local schoolmaster and a frequent visitor to the tombs Well I, I like to present the passage grave the passage grave people to children especially the first and second year children in post primary schools so that they can get some sense of wonder at the people and their achievements in the past what do you find their reaction is? I find that it fascinates them very much indeed, especially this uh, business of the 21st of December and the sun coming in through the little box over the door in Newgrange. And I think it allows children to see wonder at people in the past who were as clever, if not even more so, than the cleverest people around these days. And I think that's good. Uh, I think it's only in recent years that people have begun to value properly the achievement and the vision of the men who created this achievement. Well, I would say, for example, the work here now in, in Nauth, uh, the, the uh, full significance of it will only be seen when the work is fully published because I think when you're at work in progress, you tend to marvel at the various techniques that people use. You begin to find out what precisely they were doing, how they did it. But when all that has been completed, it's the vision that the people had, the impulse which must have been extraordinarily strong when they 
spent so much of their time that they could have been spending getting food at making these vast mausoleums. I think in a way you would look on them as luxuries and they mustn't have been, which meant that they played an extraordinarily um, profound part in their emotional lives. I will say I think there's been some controversy about whether the mound looked like that and I don't think even those who restored it as they did would claim that they could say this is what the mound looked like when it was made. But there again, you know, it's not really what the place looked like when it was made, I suppose. It's the um, effect that it had on the imaginations of men. That's, I think, as important as any other. And if it may be so bold as to say so, I think um, in the paintings of Nano Reed, who died there recently in Drogheda, she was fascinated by these uh, mounds here. And I think if you want to see something of the vision of the people who made this place, and of the way in which it, these these places affect the minds of children. See her paintings, like the um, Cave of the Fir Bullock and uh, other paintings like that. Newgrange, Nowth and Douth have a particular interest for archaeologists, but they are the heritage of all the people of Ireland and should be an inspiration to us. To Father Rice, they are just that. I feel in Newgrange itself, the sophistication of the people is seen as much in the artwork of the place as it is in the um, construction itself because the abstract designs in Newgrange I remember being there one twenty-first of December a few years ago when the uh, sunlight came in through the little box over the doorway and lit up the whole chamber and when the light went out again and the electric light went on I could see the spirals and uh, they had something of the same um, quality that the best of abstract art has it haunts your mind and you don't know why and it must echo the shapes of the area round about you that are below the level of your awareness and I think uh, I could see anyway maybe I'm a, bi- a bit um, using too much imagination but I could see the mind of the gentleman I thought who had made these and he knew that he would haunt the imaginations of people perhaps smaller than himself and smaller than the people who were there long after Uh, he was dead Uh, I remember standing in the uh, chamber itself and when the sun came in it was like the glow of old gold and you would think if you put your hand out that you would feel the light was warm of course it was only an illusion and it gradually crept up the chamber it can't have been an accident and it was like as if an invisible man were carrying one of these old style lamps And then all of a sudden, when the light hit the chamber itself, you could see the stepped corbel roof. And you could feel that there was a presence in the chamber which must have been uh, almost like a metaphor that the men who made it created to give people hope. That uh, not only would the spring come, because this was the 21st of December every year and bring back new life to the crops, but hope for human beings even beyond um, the darkness of the grave.